to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you hit the grades of your dreams at school, college, and university through the science of fast learning and lasting memory, the psychology of study productivity, and the secrets to great exam technique. And now your host, the Cambridge University trained psychologist who's dedicated his life to helping students study better and outsmart their exams, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Hot on the heels of last week's excellent episode on becoming a better math student with Joachim Cassell, this week we're turning our attention to English. So if you've got high school English exams coming up, you are in the right place. And that's because this week we're going to hear from Mr. Sales, known online as the slightly awesome English teacher. In my personal opinion, I think slightly awesome is putting it mildly. Um, I first came across Mr. Sales on his YouTube channel, Mr. Sales Teaches English, and was absolutely blown away by the way he's deconstructed the ingredients you need to succeed in English exams, really creating fine-tuned recipes for everything you need in all of the different components of the exam to get as much as 100% in the exam. Now that's something worth learning from. Mr. Sales teaches, as I do here in the UK, where we sit GCSE exams at age 16. And most of his work is focused on the popular AQA exam board for the English exam, which you'll hear him refer to once or twice. But look, nearly all of the advice and strategies we're going to get into are very relevant for most English exams around the world, even if it's not AQA and even if it's not GCSE at all. Uh, there's still a lot I think you can take away from this episode. We're going to be getting into talking about how to learn what you need to know for English exams, how to practice for English exams, how to teach yourself to be the most accurate writer possibly when it comes to spelling and grammar, making sure you pick up all of those marks, how to become a great creative writer, exam technique hacks that I'd never come across before, but I think are brilliant, uh, how to get inside the examiner's head and much, much more. With all that fantastic content to talk about, it's ended up quite a long episode this week, but I do encourage you to listen all the way through as Mr. Salas keeps throwing out outstanding hits and tips right the way to the end, and I don't want you to miss a thing. So with that, let's get started. Enjoy. Mr. Salas, a very warm welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Thank you very much. Very excited to be one of your first podcasters. I look forward to the series. Excellent. Um, I was I was fascinated by this idea that it's possible to get a hundred percent in an English exam. Is that is that really true? Um, it, I, I guess I use it mainly as a metaphor. Um, in other words, what I'm trying to get students to think is: don't just think about getting the marks in the exam. Think about getting more than the marks available. So if you think of an English language exam, uh, whatever board you're doing, 50% of it is for your creative writing. And you can learn to write well above the level needed for an English language exam. Uh, and so you should do that. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not impossibly hard to learn to be a really good writer beyond the level of a GCSE, which is taken by 15 and 16-year-olds. Um, and the other, the other aspect is... Um, 50% of the exam is devoted to reading and the examiners have to tie themselves into all sorts of knots in order to make the questions fit particular assessment objectives that are handed down to them by government, really. Uh, and that means the reading questions aren't 
actually a proper test of the student's ability to read, they're often a proper test of how well they meet the assessment objective of objectives of each question. So with it, with the, those questions, you really have to take a view of, right, if I'm going to get every single mark, it's not enough to be good at English. I actually have to be good at the exam, which is really galling as a teacher. I hate that. But I also have to be realistic with my students and say, look, there are lots of tricks to the questions and you can train yourself to get full marks. Um, and what's even worse is, you know, I've got an English degree uh, when I sat the exam without looking at the mark scheme, I, I couldn't score 100% just by being brilliant at English because there are all these hidden little traps of the questions. Fantastic. Well, well, we'll get into a few of those, I imagine, over the course of the conversation. So you're kind of hinting there that there's a, there's a sort of couple of big areas English students need to be to be good at. One is is sort of writing well and, and creative writing, and the other is is reading well and poems, plays, uh, books. Um, if you were to to kind of give a bird's eye view then of the the areas in which English students need to to show can perform certain skills well, how would you sort of divide it up? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd start with a kind of adult perspective. So I'd say, right, let's for a moment forget I'm taking a GCSE. And think, well, right, as an adult, I just want to be really good at, at English. I want to be able to communicate really clearly. So I'll start there with my writing. And uh, to do that, I really need to be excellent technically. So uh, in AQA, for example, um, 20% of your marks are available just for technical accuracy. Um, so don't neglect that. A lot of students think, oh, well, I'm not particularly good at punctuation or I'm not particularly good at spelling. And these are only a matter of memory. They're not a matter of intelligence. Uh, so any person studying for a GCSE can prioritise being accurate. Mm. And, and they're free marks. You know, even if uh, you're sitting in the exam and you've got a 45-minute description question to write or persuasive writing, whatever it is, and you've got 45 minutes, and you only spend 10 minutes of that writing, uh, you might not score very much on the content, but you can get 100% of the marks available for the technical accuracy. And so I'd start there. And that's also your life skill. You're going to be judged on your technical accuracy yeah. for the rest of your life. So don't neglect it. You, you said it's, um, it's a kind of memory trick rather than needing any particular intelligence. Um, yeah. If, you, if this is an area you feel you need work, what would you say to people looking to, to practice these skills? What are the, what are the good ways to, to develop them further? Well, the, the first hurdle to overcome is to practice them. So most students will be reluctant to practice those skills because they've got a history of getting stuff wrong okay. and therefore they've got an aversion to it. So you, you've got to find a way over that. Now, the easiest way to do that is to practice at intervals um, so that you've got small achievable gains. So let's imagine that I wanted to improve my punctuation. I'll say, well, okay, I'm gonna, I'm just going to practice using commas accurately and, let's say, semicolons. I'll learn those two things. I'll do that intensively for half an hour, an hour at most, and then I'll give myself three days to a week and then go back and practice that again and get my teacher to check it. Uh, and then I'll give it a week or two weeks and do the same again. And what I'll find then is I'm getting increased success. I'm not killing myself doing loads and loads of work, 
but the incremental increase in my skill is going to motivate me to do more. Mm. Um, there are loads of ways to do that. So if you're a creative person, um, you can just, you know, sit down with a blank page and just try and write sentences that are increasingly complex using commas and semicolons. Uh, or you can say, well, I don't really know how to use them properly. The best place I've found to go and do that is probably the Bristol University website. So uh, this is quite intriguing to me. So Bristol, which is one of the top universities in the country, has realised that its undergraduates are arriving with very poor uh, control of punctuation grammar. Right. Uh, so they've set up a whole free website which teaches all of those things and then provides multiple choice tests for the students to see if they're improving their knowledge. Um, but I'd say that's not quite enough. You then want to practice using it uh, so that you own it, if you like, yeah. and get your teachers to mark that. Um, we can put a link to the uh, the Bristol University site in the show notes. That sounds like a helpful place to start. And then, as you say, you, you, you build on that spacing out over intervals, as you were saying. Cool. Okay, great. Um, so your next part of the question was... Well, I guess we'd look at writing, creative writing more generally. Sure. Um, and those tasks are usually always about uh, giving information or persuading or describing on a rating. They're basically the four kinds of tasks that any exam board will ask students to do. Now, in your exam preparation, what you want is examples that have got full marks. And again, you've got to be really proactive with your teachers and go to them and say, look, can you give me a range of full mark examples? And and sadly, many students will have teachers who haven't thought that through, and they won't have the, the full mark examples. And as soon as you ask, they'll realise that's a big gap in their teaching. Uh, so do that. Um, you can also find um, examples on the exam board website. So most exam boards include exemplar material that you can look at and you just have to navigate the website to find it and then obviously increasingly you can get onto youtube um and you know my channel i've got student exemplars all the time um and mr bruff who's by far the biggest uh, english gcse uh, broadcaster is also increasingly putting student exemplars on um so find the exemplars because uh, if you sit down and someone tries to teach you something, it's it's a slow way to learn. But if you sit down with examples in front of you, then whenever someone tries to teach you something, it's no longer ob abstract, uh, abstract. It's really, really concrete. You can see exactly what it means because the examples in front of you and you'll find yourself um, stealing ideas from 100 percent examples. Mm -hmm. And that is the best way. Get hold of those examples and then practice writing your own versions figure out why they got 100 percent. yeah i mean often um there'll be a mark scheme or a teacher to help you do that but then you think okay well now i'm going to try that myself um, and that again is i think the biggest hurdle that students have when they're revising they're kind of passive and they want to just read stuff um but actually you don't actually own what you've been studying until you try it out yourself and put yourself under a bit of exam pressure and, and see what you can remember and see what you can do. Yeah. And again, don't expect to get it first time, but just expect to improve by increments as you repeat it once a week, once every two weeks. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Um, <clears throat> I think it's it's so tempting. And I remember this when I was studying English back in the day to think, well, it's it's quite difficult to practice, particularly English. Um, yeah. So you know, I'll just read the book again or sort of reread the poems, and it, because it it's kind of nice and it's you know doesn't 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 take too much effort to do. Yeah. <clears throat> As you're saying, maybe the benefits are pretty thin, and you do need to do the practice in order to uh, to, to to really get gain the benefit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so then we come to the other 50% of the exam, which is the reading part. Now, this is quite interesting for me. So one thing you can do to prepare for the, for the reading paper is to start reading things which were written in the 1900s. Um, now, you won't want to read whole text because that takes forever. But uh, Project Gutenberg is your best place to go. Uh, so this is an online directory of every text that's out of copyright, which means uh, any 19th century text or early 20th century text will be available for free. And you want to try and read particular sections just to get familiarity with the language. And so the easiest thing is to go for particular authors, dip into some Dickens uh, dip into some Thomas Hardy, just to get a feel of what 19th century language is like, because you're going to be examined on that. Um, it will also help you if you understand something about 19th century culture and society, really. And there are probably, I'm just going to say off the top of my head, five big ideas in in the 19th century that will spread through into the 20th century. So this kind of preparation that I'm going to outline will help you for your literature exams as well. Um, so if we start with um, the role of Christianity, um, and in particular, just having a working knowledge of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, underpins virtually every text that you read in the 19th century. Um, and understanding that, you know, 80% of the population went to the church every week, um, and therefore they had a particular worldview that was Christian, will really help you. It will help you analyse the characters, the situations they're in, the idea of what was considered moral and not moral. And when you enter into those kinds of um, discussions of what society expected at the time, you're automatically in the top grades in the examiner's mind. Mm. So an understanding of the 19th century view of Christianity is crucial. And the next thing is, the enormous threats to Christianity provided by science. Um, so you can see it with uh, the writing of Frankenstein in 1819 and this idea that science was suddenly allowing man to throw over the role of God. So in Frankenstein, a human being is created from dead body parts. You know, it's a completely blasphemous concept. And the whole of the 19th century, uh, you can interpret as society trying to get to grips with the new discoveries in science like evolution and survival of the fittest and what have you that uh, are challenging the existing beliefs about God. And so those tensions are always apparent in 19th century texts. Uh, the next big idea is the role of women and feminism. Uh, so you've got, you know, the suffragette movement beginning in around about 1912, but throughout the 1900s, women are trying to establish themselves as individuals in their own right rather than just the objects of their husbands and understanding the growing 
power and influence of, of women and particularly women writers and the themes of uh, women in society will dramatically improve your understanding of any characters you come across, particularly female ones in 19th century texts. Uh, the next thing you have to consider is the growth of education. So education we kind of take for granted now, but throughout the 19th century, um, education became a right, you know, probably around about the 1880s, but the beginning of the 1800s, you only really got an education if your parents paid for it and you were rich enough. So the shifting sands of how suddenly our society became truly literate as the explosion in newspapers and magazines and the novel happened in the 1800s, it coincided with a massive increase in the level of literacy education. And the, the Victorians believed passionately that you could completely change your life by getting a better education. It's something that uh, dramatically transforms how you read 19th century texts. Um, so that's four. And then the fifth one is the changing attitude to poverty. Uh, so at the beginning of the 19th century, you've got the idea that uh, the poor are basically a subspecies of respectable people and they're to be dismissed and they're disgusting. And then by the end of the 19th century, you've got this idea that actually the poor with proper education can completely transform their lives and they're just as human as the rest of us. And perhaps society ought to do something about stopping people being poor Um and this led to loads of changes in the law and what was criminalised and what wasn't. And so if you think about those five big ideas of the 19th century, uh, your thinking will be far in advance of all the other students sitting your exam paper. And it will give you a perspective that they don't have, which is an adult perspective, which puts you always at the top of the mark scheme. Because whatever question you're doing in the reading paper, you're always asked to interpret and having a grounding in those five big ideas will mean that your interpretations are just that much more sophisticated than other people's. That's that's fascinating in in its own right, as well as being really helpful for yeah. uh, for the exam. I mean, as I'm I'm a scientist by academic training, but I've always had a had a side interest in in history. Um, I think it's so important that we have a sense of where we've come from as a yeah exactly as, 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 a, as a culture. Um, I, well, I totally agree, but I mean, I'm, I am aware that that's a kind of the benefit of being an adult that you get that perspective. Yeah, um, there are some practical things that you can do beyond that, and they're annoying, and it's it's mainly doing the exam paper. Uh, so when you sit down and do the exam paper you find out what all the little hidden secrets are that the examiners want. And you also find out how that fits with your own personal ability to sit exams. So if I give you an example, the writing questions in the AQA exam board are always at the end of the paper, uh, but they're 50% of the marks. And what happens usually is, is students run out of stamina towards the end. Mm. So they get to the final question, which might be worth 50% of the marks, um, and they do badly in it, and it dramatically affects their whole grade. Uh, so when you're practicing, you want to consider doing the questions out of the order in which they're written. And so approach the exam tactically, work out for you what the best order is. So I've trained whole schools to do question five first. Um, and it's led to a dramatic improvement in their results. Um, nationally, you'll see that between 10 and 20% of students 
don't even attempt the final question. And so, uh, you know, just switching that order has a profound impact. And something else that uh, people probably haven't realised yet with the new exam system is all exams in the UK have got harder, whatever the subject, they've got harder because there's much more content for students to learn and there's often less time for them to write about it in the exam. However, that's also an illusion because the government is also protecting the number of students at particular grades, particularly grade four and grade seven. So really what that means is 26% of students have to get grade three and below and 74% have to get grade four and above. So, you know, even if everyone in the country does really badly in the exam, it doesn't matter. 70, <coughs> sorry, 74% of them are still going to do okay because that's the way that the government statistics work. So another way of approaching the exam is to think, well, I've actually just got to be better than other students. And to do that, I just need to work harder. And partly that's the preparation for the exam. But actually, a dramatic amount of it is your preparation in the exam. So it's really common for students to get to the last half hour, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, and suddenly slow down or stop. Um, and that's just giving everybody else who carries on writing uh, an advantage over you because you're judged against everybody else nationally. Everybody's ranked. And it's just, you know, the top three quarters who get good grades and the bottom quarter who don't. So really, the, the thing to set yourself is, right, it's within my power and control to work harder than the bottom 50%. I can definitely be in the top 50% for hard work. And that actually translates into exam results. And, and you'd be amazed at how many students will put, you know, an hour and 10 minutes into an hour and a half exam. And the last 20 minutes, they're cruising and thinking, well, I've kind of done my best. Yeah. Um, and psychologically, if they can actually go to the very last minute, they'll get many, many more marks. And is that just a matter of mindset or is, is that sort of stamina something we can we can train for that we can practice for? Yeah, I think it's both, isn't it? So you start with a mindset thinking, oh, my God, that's really hard work and it sounds really hard. But if your mindset is then, okay, well, I can I can write continuously for an hour and 10 minutes. So I'll now practice writing continuously for an hour and 15 or an hour and 20. It's still not the hour and a half that I want or the hour and 45 that I want, but I'll see success and then next time I'll be able to improve. You know, it's like training to run a marathon. You you'd really struggle going out and running a marathon tomorrow. But if you had a training plan uh, where you run much shorter distances, eventually you get to running a marathon, no bother. Yeah. And it's the same with the exam. And the other thing that I think, I don't think teachers have fully taken on board yet is two years ago, a student probably would only have sat about 20 exam papers across all their GCSEs. And now they're sitting over 30. And so the reward for, personality that ability to persevere when things are tough are actually much greater whereas before it might have mattered whether you were more intelligent or better at a subject now those advantages are much less than can i just keep going and not give up and you actually get rewarded more for that stamina mm. and that commitment to just keep going 
That's fascinating. I mean, it's also great preparation. If any students are thinking about going on and taking um, more tough subjects at, at university. I yes. And medicine was always notorious for this, you know, have, have two weeks of 20 plus hours of exams. And some of my peers at that stage really struggled because just, just that they, they, they couldn't hold the pen in their hand for that yeah. long, particularly if they've been using a laptop quite a lot in their studies that year. I think getting that practice in with the pen is pretty pretty important yes yeah, it's, it's hugely important and the other aspect of that is um joined up handwriting yeah let's um, talk about that well the interesting thing about joined up handwriting is that you write quicker and therefore your ideas hit the page more quickly and that helps you two ways in an english exam in particular um it buys you more time to build better ideas um, but because your ideas are hitting the page more quickly, your thinking actually improves. It's not held back by the speed of your writing. Uh, so actually, it's much easier to get higher marks with joined up handwriting. And the second thing you'll notice is when you call back exam papers, um, students who don't join up their handwriting can, of course, get brilliant marks. But there is a pattern that academic writers do tend to use joined up handwriting. And they do tend to get higher marks. Part of that will be the psychological impression that it creates in the examiner's head. Because the examiner is going to – the way marking works is uh, when you're marking an English exam, you're paid for how many answers you mark. You're not paid by the hour. So financially, the quicker you can arrive at a mark, the more money you'll make. So there's there's this inbuilt pressure as as an examiner – to arrive at a mark really quickly. And consequently, when you're reading an answer, you kind of made up your mind as within 30 seconds what the what the mark's going to be. And then you're reading the rest of the answer to check how reasonable that assumption was. Uh, so a useful tactic is simply to have joined up handwriting because it raises the bar of the examiner's first impression. And let's say they mark you down. They're marking you down from a high initial mark in psychological terms, that's called an anchor. And so the higher you can place the examiner's anchor, the, the less they'll reduce your mark by. And the, the reason that's important is quite sad, but in a 24-mark question, trained examiners will disagree by up to six marks. And, and that's the nature of English, and it's also the nature of anchors. Um, and the exam board won't do anything about that, Um they'll accept that as the normal range of disagreement. Well, six marks over 24 questions is much more than an exam grade. So the more that you can do to control the examiner's expectation, uh, the better. And so another tactic I'd recommend is when you start a question, you really want to show off in the first sort of five minutes or so where you you put all your best thinking there. And then if your answer peters out a a bit later, you'll still have banked this brilliant first impression and the examiner will be much more likely to credit you than if that brilliance appears in the middle or towards the end of your answer. Interesting. So make that good first impression, not just with your handwriting, but also put your best foot forward in terms of your juiciest ideas. Yes. I guess while we're talking a bit about exam technique, um, you shared some thoughts on on the order in which to tackle questions. So starting with those longer yeah. questions and making sure you give yourself maximum opportunity to score on those. Any other thoughts on 
allocating time in your exam, both to different questions and also to, to different, yeah. I guess, parts of the exam process, you know, planning, writing, yes. and then checking your work at the end. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, the, the watch is your favorite friend in the exam. And when you do your mocks, you'll probably find that you get to the end of the exam and realize you haven't been checking the time for each question. You've just done the paper. And that's not the most efficient way, especially if you're running out of time, because you want to you want to apportion your time in order to get the maximum marks. So, again, if I take the English paper example, um, two years ago, before we had the new exam, uh, the paper lasted two hours and 15 minutes. And the examiners used to say to the students on the exam paper, spend the first 15 minutes reading. And you didn't have to. They just recommended that as a strategy. Well, there are all sorts of reasons why that's rubbish advice and mainly to do with cognitive load, which we might talk about later. But it's rubbish advice to spend 15 minutes reading because you'll just forget what you've read. Now, the exam students sit now is pretty much exactly the same exam, but they're only given an hour and 45 minutes. So they're given half an hour less. And on the front of the exam paper, the examiners still say spend the first 15 minutes reading. So your first job is to ignore that. Do not spend the first 15 minutes reading. This therefore allows you to apportion the number of marks by the number of minutes. Um, so in the AQA exam, it works out as one and a half minutes per mark. And so that tells you how long to spend on a question. So an eight mark question will take you 12 minutes. A 24 mark question will take you 36 minutes. You know, So you can see exactly how the time works. Now, this has another advantage because... Everybody sits the same paper, which means even the least academically able student in your subject has still got to sit the same exam as you, which means that the marks available at the beginning of the question are virtually given away. So if you're overrunning in time, let's say you're doing a 12-minute answer and you get to the end of 12 minutes and you haven't finished, your natural instinct is, well, I'll just rob two minutes off my next question just to finish and have an awesome answer. But that's actually a really inefficient way to approach the exam because those two minutes at the beginning of the next answer will get you many, many more marks because the easy ones are always available right at the beginning. And those last two or three marks on the question are super hard to get. So tactically, you stick to your time limits. And then if you've got spare time at the end, then you can go back and fill in the bits that you missed. But it really is important to stick to your time limits. Got it. Uh, yeah, I can't overemphasize that enough, really. And then the other thing about exam order is um, examiners approach the world as they'd like it to be other than as it really is. So so I've had some interesting debates with the, the chief English examiner on AQA and and their view is, right, we'll start everybody off with a nice, easy four-mark question. And it's deliberately easy to give the students a, self, a sense of confidence. And it works. So it's four marks. And I think the average mark across the country is something like 3.8, which means, you know, virtually everyone gets four marks. And if they don't, they still get three. Well, the problem with that is it sets up a psychologically false expectation of the difficulty of the exam. And, you know, what psychological studies show is that if, if people start off with a task they think is easy and then they meet a difficulty later on, they're much more likely to give up. And that's actually what you see when you look at the national picture of the, the questions that students do. 
they give up on the harder questions at the end. Um, but if you change the order and save the easiest questions to last, um, well, then you're going to get higher marks because your brain is already prepared for the exam to be difficult and you meet the challenge rather than giving in as it gets harder. Uh, so it's really important to think about doing the high mark questions first from a psychological point of view because it will get you the marks much more easily than if you if you start on the easy ones. Interesting. Okay. When you when you're within a question, say it's a sort of long, longer answer question, twenty four marks or so. Do you, do you advise students to start with a plan for their answer? Yeah, that's really interesting. What I'd advise them to do is is during their revision and their mocks, I'd try doing a plan, but I'd limit the plan to three minutes. So you spend no longer than three minutes. When the GCSEs first came out, before that it was O-levels, um, uh, sorry, then it was GCSEs, which was 100% coursework in English. There was no exam at all. And then this system was changed. I'd just begun teaching. So I thought, well, I'll sit the exam with my students. And I went to my head of department, who was a senior examiner, and I said to him, well, tell me how to approach an exam. Oh, well, you know, go through the text, get your highlighter out, highlight all the important bits, um, make a plan, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I tried that. I tried it for the first few questions, and I could not keep to my time limits. Just slowed me down, yeah. And so ever since then, uh, I call back the top mark answers from my students every year um, to see what they did. And invariably, well, not invariably, but 90% of the time they don't plan and I teach them not to plan. And another way of getting around that is I tell them they can plan for the question before they ever get into the exam. So if we're thinking about a literature exam, whatever the question is doesn't matter. What the examiner really wants is for you to write about the author's ideas about the time that they were writing and then how the character or whatever it is you're writing about fits those ideas. And you can prepare what the author's ideas are in advance. So you already know what you're going to write. You know what your argument's going to be because you're always going to consider the end of the text where the final argument is put forward by the author. Whatever, whatever text you're reading, poem, play, novel, whatever it is, that final res resolution is a way that the author tidies up all the ideas or the themes that they've been playing with in the text. So if you know that you're basically going to write about the author's big ideas and you're always going to write about the ending, that's your plan. And then everything else just fits into it. And in the English language exam, it's pretty much exactly the same. So if you're doing a persuasive piece, you know that you've got to start with big ideas. And those five ones that I talked about at the beginning, um, you know, the religion, science, feminism and the patriarchy, um, education and poverty, you know, those five big ideas will probably cover any single exam question you're ever given. Um, and if you've thought through your position on those, you've automatically got um, big ideas to start with in your writing. And you also know where you're going to end up because you know what your your argument is, what your point of view is. Um, so you do your planning before you even get into the exam. You can even cheat the system dramatically. So if I go to AQA again, the most popular um, question that students get 
is they usually have a choice between writing a description and writing a narrative. And schools overwhelmingly prepare their students to write a description because it's easier. Well, you can actually memorize three paragraphs of a kind of negative kind of description of a setting and then another three paragraphs of a positive one. Um, and you know that you'll be able to use versions of those, whatever the question. So if you're stuck at a low grade and you want to jump a grade or two, that's a technique you can use. You know, bank two descriptions in your in your head, practice them at those intervals that we've talked about, um, and you're guaranteed to be able to use those in the exam. Um, and they'll fit any question. It, it's, it's, it's a kind of a cynical way to approach it, but... You know, if you're stuck in a grade four and you want a five or a six, it's a legitimate tactic. It's not going to get you a seven, eight or a nine. But, you know, at the at the mid-grade range, it's a, it's a really good tactic. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. And you can do the same with stories. You know, you know that if you're asked to write a story, it's either going to – well, it's always going to involve a character, isn't it? And so you just have two stories, one which is a negative kind of character and one which is a positive one. And, and you can prepare those in advance. Um, you don't have to use them when you go into the exam. You might get a better idea. But in your revision, you think, right, oh, I've got these two stories that I've rehearsed, that I've practiced, that I've drafted, so they're as best as I can make them. And you can use those. So in terms of the planning, I, what I'd say is, by and large, you do your planning before you get into the exam. And in the exam, you don't really have time to plan properly. If you are going to plan three minutes and that's it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, if I'm a student a little bit more advanced, maybe a level, particularly into university, um, yes. I, I wonder if I start to bring the, do, do I start to bring the plan back in as, as what's required of me gets more, more complex? Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a good question. I'd, I'd give a similar answer. I'd say that your, your preparation time is where you plan. So, you know, if you're studying, um, an A-level text, you, your sense of what the big ideas are are really going to be influenced by critical theory. So you're going to think, well, you know, what if I take a feminist perspective here or a Marxist perspective? Or usually you'll want to take two or three perspectives to your text. And that will give you a really interesting, uh, an interesting conflict in different interpretations, which you'll have to resolve. And resolving that conflict in your revision will make you know those texts inside out, but also the author's intentions inside out. And you'll find you've got lots of interesting things to say. So your plan in the exam then is, right, well, here's the exam question. How can I make these critical viewpoints fit the question? And so in your plan then, you're just going to be dipping into your understanding of those um, literary viewpoints and jotting those ideas down. And... The easiest way to plan that is to don't say no to anything when you're planning in the exam. Every idea that comes into your head, you write down on the page. That stops you wasting time. And then once you've spent your three minutes, four minutes doing that, you'll, you'll then number them in the sequence that makes sense to you to form an argument. Some of them you'll cross out because they won't fit your argument, but you'll automatically then give yourself an order in which to write. And then the skill is in working out, do you start with your most powerful argument first and reinforce it with the rest of your essay, or do you build towards putting your most powerful argument last? 
And again, that's something that you try out in your exam preparation. So you'll do an exam practice both ways, give them both to your teacher and say, you know, which one's going to get higher marks. Cool. No, thank you for that. What what about the other end of the other end of the process? So when once we've written our answers, um, what, what are your thoughts on uh, checking at the end? So how much time are we leaving for that? And 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 what, yeah. what does the process actually involve? What do we want to be doing while we're checking? Okay, um, in in English exams, there isn't that much advantage in in leaving time to check. And by that I mean if I've got five minutes. I can probably spend five minutes writing more on a reading question, making more points, getting more marks than I will earn by spotting mistakes and spending five minutes checking. So tactically, in the English exam, for the reading paper, you don't want extra time to check. Now, in the writing paper, it's different because typically what you'll find is students are really bad at punctuation and probably 80% of that is habit. So students are used to texting, they're used to predicted text, and they're used to autocorrect when they type. And so a modern student has really trained themselves out of the skill of being accurate. So if you know that's you, you need five minutes at the end of the language exam to read through what you've written um, to spot your mistakes. However, again, it comes back to preparation. If you've if you've done the preparation in the exam practice of being accurate, you know that going into the exam, you're not going to make those kinds of mistakes, or you will, but they're few and far between. Um, so you have to judge for yourself what kind of what kind of level of, am I at? If you need to check your spellings, the easiest way to do that is to read the text backwards, and the reason for that is. Uh, your brain knows the text forwards and it will predict what the next word is and it will read it correctly even if it's totally misspelt. Uh, whereas if you read the text backwards, it makes no sense at all um, and so you'll instantly spot a spelling mistake. That's a neat trick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, however, there's not that many marks available for spelling. There's more for the punctuation. So the first thing I do is read for meaning uh, and particularly... The real killer is that you get incorrect sentence demarcation. And by that, I mean the typical thing is students will use commas instead of full stops. Uh, Or sometimes they'll miss out the full stop altogether because they're in a rush. And those two things, using commas instead of full stops and missing full stops, are typical of students at grade three and below. So if we talk about the anchor again for the examiner, it doesn't matter how good your writing is. If you're making those two mistakes, the examiner is putting their anchor as low as they possibly can. So those two things are fundamental. If you know you make mistakes with commas, you have to devote time to checking for that because it is a huge psychological barrier for the examiner. And it's also a real barrier in the mark scheme. I mean, it's it's typically at grade three if you're insecure with commas. So again, it depends on your skill as a writer. If you're a good writer who's already operating at grade seven and above, I, I wouldn't necessarily have time to check my answer. It'd be, it would be better to craft a better answer than to check what you've written. Yeah, got it. That makes that makes sense. And, and thank you. Thank you for that. Is there anything else about the, the, the sort of exam taking process that you think would be, would be helpful to mention? I guess the one thing that I'd emphasize that I find students are most reluctant to do 
is to actually try doing the exam, trying to do the exam yeah. independently. Um, and you know, that's the, you can buy my revision guide. You can watch my YouTube videos. I've got two revision guides coming out on the short story and an inspector calls in the next two weeks. Um, and much as I'd love to say, you know, they'll solve your problems. They will, but only if you, whatever revision you'd use, you then apply directly to an exam question and, and test it out in real time. Yeah. Um, and that is your, by far your best technique uh, in terms of getting better at English. Yeah. Do you recommend doing that with the book closed? So with your exercise book away? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, it It's really easy to uh, get the feeling that you're making progress because you're familiar. Uh, so for example, uh, you're writing something about a character. You've got a vague impression of what the quotation is. You look it up and you think, oh, I, I had most of that. Yeah. Because your brain wants to reward you. I mean, you know, it's the pleasure principle. You're doing something unpleasant, which is the exam practice, and you want these rewards to make you feel better. But actually, you create a story which isn't true. And the story is, hey, yeah, my revision's going really well. I know this yeah. stuff. But actually, all it means is you're familiar with the stuff, but you can't retrieve it when you need it. So I would definitely recommend getting rid of the book or planning planning that extra step. So, okay, the first time I'll do it, I'll have some resources with me. Uh, but then the second time I'll redo it with no resources at all. And that's the stage you need to end up at. And so in your revision, you have to work out how soon you can get to that stage. Got it. Got it. Um, just one final little nugget, if if I may. It's I know it's common practice now amongst GCSE students to need to memorise quotes. This this wasn't the case yeah. in my day. <laughs> um, yeah. Any cool uh, cool techniques you suggest for getting those quotes in, into your memory? Yeah, I've just done some videos on that, but um, yeah, I'll summarise a range of ways for you. Um, so tactically. I've already spoken about the importance of the ending of the text. Um, so what you're going to know is that the ending of the text is always something you need to quote. So memorize the quotations at the end, whether it's poem, play or novel. They will be useful to you in every single essay. You'll never find an essay title where you can't use the ending quotation. Um, that is your most important skill because it also links to the author's purpose in writing, which is something that, attracts the higher marks at the higher end of the mark range. Um, so learn that. The next thing you want to do is instead of learning quotations about characters, learn quotations about the big ideas, the themes. So I've given you the five of the 19th century novel. Uh, there'll be others. You know, if you're studying Macbeth, you'll want some on the supernatural, for example. Um, and you want to make a list of the top five quotations for each theme. So let's imagine there are seven themes. That gives you 35 quotations. There's still too many to revise. So your next step is then to go to the characters and think, well, which of these would I already be able to use for each character? And then that narrows the quotations down. So if there's a quotation that just links to a theme but not to a character, you're going to ditch it. Uh, so you can probably rationalise down to about 20 quotations that you need to learn at most for a text then, okay. you know, like a Macbeth text. For a poem, for a poem, you just want five quotations, uh, the beginning, the ending, uh, 
some aspect of imagery, uh, something about the form, something about structure. Uh, so five quotations for poem, 20 probably for a longer text. And you get really efficient at working out which quotations um, will match the theme as well as a character. Uh, then the other thing you can do is treat each quotation as a longer one. So let's imagine I've got something like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the, the language that I know will always be appropriate is this description of him committing a murder with ape-like fury. And I know that that, that phrase, ape-like fury, I'll always be able to relate to any question about Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. So it's, it's one of those go-to quotations that can't fail. However, that's in a paragraph with other words which describe his murder of this character, Sadamvers Carew. And I can pick on two or three of those words which will be useful for me to write about the other themes. So if I want to write about the Gothic theme of the novel, there's this tiny description next to it of the body bouncing on the pavement because it's being hit with such force. And so I'll just remember the word bouncing. I'll write that with my ape-like fury quotation. That that's the kind of tactic I can use by starting with a really short quotation and then adding single words to it that come from elsewhere in the paragraph or so that that quotation came from, which will give me a kind of really rich novel, uh, rich knowledge of the text that I'll be able to use for any question. Then how do I actually learn those when I've narrowed them down? Uh, the brain's quite interesting. So, one tactic I'll use is I'll write them all as anagrams. Uh, so each each word will be an anagram, and I just make sure that the first and last letters are the same. And amazingly, your brain will still be able to read it. Nice. Um, then the next stage is to take out the anagram and just leave the first and last letter of each word and try and reconstruct it. And the next stage is to get rid of the last letter of each word, so you've just got the first letter. And then the final stage is to start taking words out. Um, so if you follow that process through, um, you make the quotations that you have to learn harder and harder, uh, but you go in small steps. So you're always getting success and you're always embedding the knowledge. I love that. That's great. Until you're able to to reproduce it completely from scratch on exam day. Exactly. Fantastic. Well, look, I, I always ask at, at the end, if, if you were able to go back and uh, bump into your 15 or 16-year-old self in the uh, the playground or wherever he was hanging out at that yeah. age, um, you know, what, what would you sort of say to him about um, kind of attitude towards studying or, you know, what, what's the sort of, what do you know now that you wish you'd known uh, back then? That's a good question. Uh, right. Well, despite the fact that I've talked about the way to maximize your marks in the exam. I'd go back to my original, well, your original question about being able to get hundred percent. And I talked about wanting to get more than hundred percent. The, the reason that, that I put it in those terms is, you know, let's imagine I've decided I'm going to do the short story question instead of a description question. Well, actually what I want to be able to do is write really good short stories uh, so I'm going to train myself to do that. I'm going to get my teacher to teach me. and I'm going to get as many examples as I can. And by the way, there are not many out there. You know, 500 word short stories, a few and far between. So I'm going to learn to become a really good writer. And along the way, I'll happen to take my GCSE. But what I will have taken away from it is that brilliance in writing. 
so if I can take it away from English, for example, um, my son went to university and did uh, maths and physics. And when he was doing his A-level physics, he got obsessed with Richard Feynman mm. and, you know, watched every single YouTube video that he could possibly find on him. And he learned well beyond the A-level course uh, and it gave him a lasting passion for physics. He's now doing a master's in engineering and he's applying it in some way. But the interest came from that real level of immersion in the subject that he was interested in and the passion for learning more than is just on the exam paper. And so I would try and, and advise myself as a younger person to become a master of my subject rather than think about the exam. Now, in the modern day, that's even more important. You know, when I was growing up, only 15% of students went to university. Well, now 50% of students go to university. And so like, there's a counterintuitive thing going on here where what I'd actually say is, look, whatever grade you get in your GCSE doesn't matter a damn. Mm. It, you know, because as long as you're working hard, you're going to get onto an A-level course. And as long as you're working hard during your A-level, you're going to get to a university. And so don't think about it in those terms. Take a step back and think, how do I get brilliant in the subject? And then along the way, I'll also get the qualification. And how I would apportion it is I'd say, right, I'll spend 75% of my time learning to be brilliant at the subject. And then in my last 25% of the course, I'll teach myself how to use that in the way that the examiner wants. And that's when I'll be doing my past papers, uh, going through the MART scheme, uh, you know, constantly rehearsing answers. But before that, I'd just be trying to get brilliant at the subject and ignore, if you like, ignore the course, not literally ignore it, but not worry about the course and just just to learn as much as possible and, and become passionate about what I'm studying. What a fantastic note to end on. Um, I, I love that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Look, that's been such a helpful conversation. Um, I'm sure there'll be there'll be lots of listeners wanting to to, to look you up and and dive more into uh, some of the resources you have available. Um, where would you point people to? Um, I'd point people to uh, Mr. Salas teaches English. It's not a very original sounding web <laughs> website. That's my YouTube channel, um, and they can contact me directly by posting a comment uh, on any of the videos. Um, I reply to nearly all of them. Then they can look me up on Amazon. So at the minute, I've just got the uh, the guide to 100% on English language, but within two weeks, there'll be two more guides there. And uh, yeah, I'll be delighted if, uh, if they buy, but if they don't, that's why the videos are free. Um, I, I think that's really important. I, I designed the videos mentally for a student who for whatever reason can't get to school and and so the idea behind my channel is that you can get 100 percent never having gone to a lesson uh, obviously that's a thought experiment i don't recommend that as a strategy uh, <laughs> please do go to your lessons <laughs> me, you know the idea that yeah. you can learn to be brilliant um just by by doing the right revision and i try and supply that for free on my channel that's fantastic. Um, so look, Mr. Tallis, thank you once again for coming on today. You've been an absolutely fantastic source of, of wisdom and advice. Um, thank you for, for giving of it so generously. Thanks, William. And thanks again, Mr. Tallis, for that. Really excellent stuff. 
Take a look at the show notes for this podcast, which you'll also find on my blog and website, examstudyexpert.com forward slash slightly awesome, where you'll find links to all the various resources we're talking about today, including Bristol University's free grammar exercises site, and also the Mr. Salas Guide to 100% in AQA English language exams, which I've read and can highly recommend if you're here in the UK and taking that AQA English GCSE. That's it for today. Please do remember to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so you don't miss what we've got coming up. Next time, we've got, you've got an episode on time management and good study habits from Jessica Shields, which I just know you're going to love. And with that, the podcast turns five episodes old today. And um, if you've been enjoying the Exam Study Expert podcast so far, please don't keep us a secret. Do tell your friends so we can continue to grow and attract the very best guests to come and help you with your studies even more. So until next time, very best wishes with those exams. Thanks for listening to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And please take a moment to write a review for our show in your podcast player.